Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Good afternoon. I'm Gretchen Frazee in for Bob Salzberg here with Mary Catherine Carmichael. You're listening to Noon Edition. New EPA rules require Indiana reduce its carbon emissions at least 28 percent by 2030. How that's done is largely left up to the state. Under the new rules, states are allowed to decide how they cut carbon emissions as long as they meet one of two federally established goals. Indiana and about a dozen other states are filing a lawsuit to challenge the new regulations. Indiana's attorney general called the Environmental Protection Agency's requirements an overreach of historic proportions. Today, today we're joined by experts to talk about how Indiana might meet the new regulations and the state's decision to join a lawsuit, that lawsuit against the EPA. Our guests are Mark Mazel, president of the Indiana Energy Association, which represents some of the state's largest utility companies, Jody Paris, the Indiana representative for the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign, and Ken Richards, a professor of environmental and energy policy at Indiana University's School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Thank you all for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Ken, we'll start with you. Would you just outline for us what these regulations actually require Indiana to do? Well, Gretchen, the, uh, the process is, is a two-step process, one of goal setting and the second of uh, compliance, the state developing a compliance plan. And so in the goal setting plan, uh, EPA looked at three different kinds of activities that the state might uh, engage in, uh, more efficient coal plants, switching from coal to natural gas, and implementing natural um, renewable re uh, energy uh, programs. And they, they, they came up for each state with a separate goal based partly on current practices and partly on opportunities. From there, it's then up to the states to uh, figure out how to comply with the goal. Now, while the uh, EPA has developed its targets based on these three blocks, there's actually other options for complying, flexibility options that would include uh, increased energy efficiency, uh, trading with other states and other mechanisms that, uh, uh, that the state might determine are more cost-effective than the three basic building blocks. Interesting. We, we, we talked about those building blocks. What do you guys think, Jody and, and Mark, are those, uh, are those things that Indiana can implement here in the state? Yeah, absolutely, they are things that we can implement. They're things that are already happening. I've been sitting in on some of the utilities' energy planning exercises, and they are looking at their coal plants, which are almost all of them are over 30 years old. We have 75% of our coal generating capacity in Indiana is more than 30 years old, and they're all looking at what are we going to do to replace them. Not a single one is looking at building a new coal plant. They're looking at things like natural gas, at wind, at solar, at energy efficiency. So so that's already happening. That move is already happening, and, and this rule will help make sure that we keep in, keep going in that direction. Marcus, is doable? Well, I, I think, let me go back to, to the question you asked uh, and that Jody touched on. I would agree. I, th I think that the techniques that the EPA outlines, the things that, that we've been talking about in this state, all will help us reduce carbon dioxide. Frankly, they, they have already been extremely successful in reducing the levels from, from uh, the utility industry. You may have seen that April of this year had the lowest carbon dioxide emissions from the, the electric generating sector that we've seen in 27 years. So again, all of these techniques taken together are having an effect. Going to your question, Gretchen, I think the challenge will be, is there enough there to get to these very high goals that the EPA has set? And, and certainly it will be expensive to get there. Whether we're able to achieve them is, is something that, that yet we have to, you know, again, the, the rule just came out on Monday. So I, I've got to admit, I haven't read the whole thing, Ken, you may be ahead of me, but 1,500 pages of really dense reading, I haven't made it. Along those same lines, our existing um, our energy companies, Vector and Duke, um, locally with Hoosier Energy, are they already investing in renewable energy um, plans? I know Hoosier Energy recently um, has started a, a solar farm. Um, are other companies doing that sort of work? The answer is every one of the companies uh, here in Indiana, whether it's investor-owned like a Duke or Vectran or a, a rural electric like Hoosier Energy or a municipality, we have all three forms here in the state. They are all investing in it. 
and, and I should be careful, investing, whether they're building it themselves as sort of a true investment or they're contracting with somebody and saying, you build it, we'll buy the power. In either case, they are diversifying their portfolios pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. Before we get too far, we want to remind our listeners that they can join the discussion. You can call 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, or you can tweet us at noon edition. Okay. Uh, what kinds of things can the plants do to the current, the existing plants do to re- reduce emissions? We have, we've all heard the term the scrubber. Uh, you know, the coal scrubber, then, you know, with varying degrees of does that really work or not? But um, what else can they do? So I, I might start in a, a, a very broad outline sure. as a true academic uh, would and, and leave actual detail to my uh, practitioner colleagues. The uh, If you think about it as a strategy approach, there are, there are basically three things that a utility can do. The first thing it can do is uh, reduce emissions or the generation of carbon associated with generation. And those are really the three building blocks that um, uh, that EPA uh, developed its estimates, its goals uh, on. Uh, higher efficiency, higher, uh, better heat rates for uh, coal, switching to natural gas, replacing it with uh, renewable, uh, renewable energy. The second is that it can reduce consumption. So we can have fewer, we can have lower emissions by reducing demand. That's on the demand side. Mm-hmm. So consumers can simply consume less energy. And the third is that we can capture carbon after it's uh, after it's generated, capture it, store it in the ground. That is a, a variation on the scrubber technique mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Generally, when we think about scrubbers, we're thinking about something like sulfur dioxide. So this is called carbon capture and storage. It's a it is a um, developing technology. We've had uh, discussions about this going on. I've been involved in this for, I I hate to say it, 20 years I've been involved in these discussions Mm -hmm. about carbon capture and storage. And uh, the, uh, but but we're we're still developing that. And it's, frankly, it's an expensive technique. The Hmm. rules go, or we need to meet the goal by 2030. Is that, does that give enough time to develop that, that carbon capture sequestration technique? Judy, you're shaking your head. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't. You know, like, as Ken said, we've, they've been working on it for 20 years, and we still haven't seen it. So what, what the Sierra Club would like to see is let's retire these old power plants that are inefficient and that are increasingly expensive to run. Um, you know, this rule is a huge step forward. This, these safeguards are a huge step forward for our country in taking an action on climate change. And we need to remember that that is costing billions of dollars already in our state from, from the impacts of climate disruption. And it's dis- destabilizing the world. And so this is something that we need to do. And what we would like to see and what utilities across the country are doing is moving to renewable energy and, and incorporating a lot more wind and solar power and doing more uh, energy efficiency. And we're being left behind because our state's policies in that area are not progressive. And, in fact, the utilities have fought uh, a very good energy efficiency program that we had under Governor Daniels and um, and managed to get that canceled in in the General Assembly so that now the utilities control energy efficiency programs instead of having to meet uh, state goals for that. So we need to get back to having uh, policies that actually promote efficiency and renewable energy in this state and and get roll up our sleeves and get to work on it. What you're talking about there is Energizing Indiana was the state's previous um, energy efficiency program. As you mentioned, the legislature decided to phase out that program at the end of last year because they said it was just getting too costly for the state. Mark, what do you think about that? I mean, is there a place for energy efficiency? And if so, how how doable is it when we don't have a statewide energy efficiency policy? Well, let, let me suggest the answer to the question is absolutely energy efficiency is doable. Absolutely energy efficiency is critical to our future going forward. We, we need to look at all strategies to help us meet the, the needs of our customers as well as uh, protecting the environment and doing all of that in a cost-effective fashion. As you point out, energizing Indiana, the only concern that, that 
people, and not just utilities, but a lot of people had, was the cost of, of the program. There was an effective program. Frankly, if you look at the studies, they show that it was very cost effective, but it's in the early years we can capture the, the easy kinds of improvements to make. It got progressively more expensive, frankly tripling the cost from what was spent in the first five years to what would be spent in the second five years of that particular program. Uh, as we look on a, on a going forward basis, that cost issue is something that needs to be really thought about. And, and let me let me give you a perspective on that that, that I think is, is important for us to think about. Uh, if we look at the income of Hoosiers, and, and just think for a minute or two about kind of how it falls, if you if you think of someone who makes over, or household rather, that makes over $50,000 a year, they will tend to spend something like 9% of their income on energy. On the other hand, if you make less than $30,000, you'll spend 27% of your income. Now, if we start really on energy costs, if we start really increasing that energy cost, that family at the lower end of the scale is going to struggle more and more. And we certainly have all seen the challenges that that presents to Hoosier families, the easy ones that we see in the newspaper fairly often. What about senior citizens on a fixed income? What are the choices they're going to have to make as we look at this? There are certainly important issues at stake. I'm not sure we can say in the clean power plan that they've been considered, thought through, or even balanced in the least. Ken, what are some of the projections here for utility increases with this, these new rules? The, um, the, the answer is it's too soon to say. Uh, the, 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 the process by which we got to this point is that there was a, a preliminary rule, a proposed rule, in 2014. The EPA put this out there for uh, comment. Uh, there were, I think it was 4 million comments yeah. submitted on that proposed rule. You can imagine how mm -hmm. much effort it takes to go through 4 million mm -hmm. comments, summarize them, and start responding to them. But they, they did do that, uh, something of a heroic effort, I suppose. And uh, in the end, they came back with uh, a new rule, the final rule. And under this, a lot changed. Uh, the goals for individual states changed. The overall target or um, projected reductions in carbon changed. And so the, the, while the uh, early assessments of uh, energy cost increases uh, were, um, uh, were in the range of 1% to 14% and in some cases higher, uh, it's hard to say what this new one will, will look like. EPA has projected it will look something on the order of a 1% increase uh, in prices but they're also projecting a savings in 2030 of something on the order of $90 per household per year uh, based on energy efficiency gains. In other mm -hmm. words, when the price goes up, when people have more access to energy efficient uh, technologies, then their overall bill will go down. That's the EPA projection. That is a fight that's going to be worked out over the next year as people start cranking up their economic models. Yeah, Jody, I know that the Sierra Club also uh, is concerned about health uh, effects of coal burning. Do you think that the average household or does the Sierra Club say anything about um, health benefits and a reduction in health care costs as a result of cleaner air? Absolutely. Um, we need to remember that the health impacts of coal on our state are extremely expensive. The IU School of Medicine has estimated an annual cost of $5 billion uh, to our health to the public health in, in Indiana based on coal pollution. Mm. So we have a lot of benefits that we'll be in, accruing if we clean up our power sector. And, and yes, we're concerned about the low-income families and, and their ability to afford paying these, these high electric bills. But those bills are going up because we're overly dependent on coal, not because we, we have so much coal. They're, they're already going up. We see a lot of the utility bills have across the state have increased 25, 40, 50 percent in the last 10 years. And so what we're seeing in other states where they're investing in low cost solar, which you know is now uh, beats, beats the cost of building a new coal plant nearly everywhere and low cost wind power, energy efficiency, as, as uh, was mentioned earlier, saved uh, our Energizing Indiana program saved Indiana 
ratepayers $3 for every dollar spent. And when the utilities say that it was getting more expensive, it was getting more expensive because we were accomplishing more. We were actually, it's like you build more roads, it's going to cost more money to build more roads. The actual uh, cost effectiveness in terms of saving $3 for every dollar spent wasn't expected to decline. So the reason why the program was getting uh, a higher cost is because we were going to be achieving more and more each year in reducing energy demand in Indiana. And and that was that was canceled. And uh, we, we now have a, you know, a stepchild of that program and so we need to we need to go back and 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 get to a program that is actually saving ratepayers money and that isn't overly rewarding utilities with with extra incentives that they're that they're reaping for these energy efficiency programs as well okay what about individual responsibility for energy reduction and things that individuals can do um, I know here in Bloomington I'm seeing more and more solar panels on on roofs and uh, I know for a long time you could sell excess energy um, back to the energy company I confess I lost track of that legislation during uh, recent uh, the recent session but um, Ken, would you speak to that uh, you know how can the individual homeowner um, have an impact on this reduction that we're trying to achieve? Well, Mary Catherine, thanks for asking that. The um, uh, the answer is that there's lots of opportunities for uh, uh, for reducing energy use at the household level. Uh, one of them is simply paying attention to the behavioral issues. What do I do when I walk into a room? Do I turn the lights on immediately, even if I don't need them? Do I turn them off? The, the, the obvious things. There's another level uh, uh, in, in, of, of, of uh, effort, which is what am I going to do about the house itself? Uh, and um, the uh, uh, Bloomington uh, uh, City uh, Office of Sustainability is promoting energy efficiency in a very uh, big way. At, we're, we're actually in the middle of a contest right now where Bloomington is out trying to outperform other cities. And, uh, and they're offering energy audits. And so this is a great opportunity for people to, to go in and have their house examined, have it, uh, have it assessed, and then start taking uh, uh, cost-effective steps to reduce energy use. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. We're discussing EPA regulations announced this week that require Indiana cut its carbon dioxide emissions. Let us know what you think by participating in the live chat on WFIU.org slash Noon Edition or tweeting us at Noon Edition. You can also call into the program at 812-855-0811 or toll free at one 285 Nine three four eight. I'd like to go back to that the health effects because the EPA regulates a lot of pollutants, including um, sulfur and arsenic, and I think we understand how those can impact uh, our health. But could one of you just explain how does carbon dioxide impact our health? We think about when we breathe, we breathe in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. So how does it really impact us? Well, if I could just suggest that, um, you know, cleaning up our power sector by reducing carbon emissions and going to energy that is, that is low or zero carbon means that we're going to be replacing the dirty coal-fired power plants that now pollute and send out a ton of pollution. And you know what? The people who are most likely to live next to those plants are low-income folks and are minority folks. And so by cleaning up the power sector and retiring some of these coal-fired power plants, we're going to get what EPA projects, a, you know, a significant... Uh, reduction in other kinds of pollutants like sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide and mercury and those those killer pollutants. So, just in a local level, by by um, shutting down or or cleaning up those power plants, we're going to have benefits. When you talk about carbon dioxide, it is a global problem. Mm -hmm. It's a global pollutant, and uh, and yeah, it doesn't have that effect at the local level, but it certainly has an impact on health around the globe. And and EPA. And scientists are projecting that um, the the climate disruption and and the increasing warmth of our climate is going to be um, adding to the ozone problem, which is presents a huge health problem to people with asthma and heart disease and lung disease, and is going to be destabilizing a lot of uh, you know the places around the world that are really. Um, you know, at the biggest disadvantage and, and displacing them to other places. And you're also talking about, you know, increases in uh, mosquitoes and other kinds of insects that, that carry disease. So it's, it's, you know, it's a global issue and it's a problem that's going to be affecting many, many people. All right. We have a caller. We have Rose from Ellettsville on the line. Hi, Rose. Yeah, hi. Um, I was really happy to hear a couple of people mention already that 
the how this is going to affect senior citizens on a fixed income because I am one, like you know, less than a thousand dollars a month, and you know my electricity's already really more than I can afford. But um, I never hear people mention what to me is the obvious, which you know they've been doing in Europe for like centuries. In the winter time, I wear long underwear and wool sweaters. And sometimes even a hat, you know, I mean, like, you know, a, a cap or whatever in the mm-hmm. winter. And my house is probably, you know, maximum like 60 degrees, and it's totally comfortable to me. Mm. People come visit, and they're sitting on their hands, you know. I mean, it's a matter of what you can get used to. But mm-hmm. um, that's, to me, that's the obvious thing, you know. You don't have to run around naked in your house in the wintertime. Yeah, dress for the weather, right? Exactly. Yeah, good suggestion. Thank you. And, and, and Rose, I have to admit, that goes back to, to Ken's discussion of behavioral changes we can all make. As you well know, the recommendations for the temperature you set your house, both in the summer and the winter, are typically uh, colder in the winter than what people set their homes and hotter in the summer. What are those recommendations? I, I think if, if people would keep their homes at 68 in that kind of a ballpark, mm-hmm. and again, Rose, this clearly exceeds in the wintertime, mm-hmm. and probably something in the mid-70s, 73, yeah. 74. A lot of the, the challenge we all feel with the heat is simply humidity, and an air conditioner will take that out even at 72, 73, 74 mm-hmm. degrees. Mm-hmm. If you can get it up to 78, even better. But mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. I will admit a lot of people think that's kind of warm. Mm-hmm. Well, you can always use... A small fan is a backup to keep the air moving. Which is far more efficient in terms of using less electricity than the air conditioner is. Right. Yeah. Did you yeah. want to comment on that? No. Okay. I was just giving my husband a hard time this morning because I was looking at our energy bills for July. We were away for a while. My mom was in the house, and she's she's you know she's not using as much uh, electronics and stuff like that. But it was a huge difference in looking online as to the power that was used when my mother was there and when we came home. Hmm. And I said, you know, we don't need to air condition the home when we're outside when we're away, and it doesn't have to be cool all day long. You can you know you can adjust it when you leave, and and there are new technologies that are making that possible. I should mention that Hoosier Interfaith Power and Light is an organization that is very active in the Bloomington area and and working with uh, churches and congregations. And I know a number of people here in Bloomington who are really religious about reducing their energy use and have, mm-hmm. you know, have reduced energy use by 30, 40, 50 percent without really trying that hard. Wow. So there are definitely ways that you can keep your energy bill down and utilities can can help people with that as well as people taking personal okay. responsibility. And, 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 and let me just add one quick caveat to that. You're right. We can raise the temperature in the summertime. I would encourage everybody to pay a little bit of attention. If it gets too warm, in other words, if you don't take enough humidity out, you run into the challenge of mold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So please, be, be thoughtful and conservative and use energy wisely, but also keep in mind there are other impacts that you want to think about. Indiana actually has one of the lowest utility rate prices in the in the country. Um, how I've heard people just say, well, we're just too spoiled. We're, we're used to this here in Indiana. Is that really the case? And, and do we just need to actually pay more for for electricity that we use? Uh, the, the answer is historically we had a extraordinarily low electric mm-hmm. rates. Those have come up over about the last decade or so as utilities have made a lot of changes, not the least of which is complying with the various EPA regulations we already comply with. That will continue as time goes by. And if the clean power plant stands, if it's not overturned in the courts, then, then you will see costs continue to rise. Typically, that leads to a, a downturn in the use of whatever we're talking about. You saw gasoline. Everybody bought smaller, more conservative cars when the price of gasoline was higher. Now everyone's tending to go back to the larger cars. Having said that, a lot of it is simply individuals' commitment to living a life where they use their energy wisely. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and we want to hear your questions and comments. Give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can send us a tweet at Noon Edition or join us on the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. We're going to go to a break here. Afterwards, we'll talk more about the legal battle surrounding the EPA's carbon rules and more from our guests. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. 
You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at WFIUnews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUnews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Gretchen Frazee with WFIU and here with Mary Catherine Carmichael. We're talking about EPA's carbon emissions rules they announced this week. We're talking with Mark Mazel, the president of the Indiana Energy Association, Jody Paris, the Indiana representative for the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign, and Ken Richards, a professor of environmental and energy policy at Indiana Indiana University's School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Um, Before we get into the, the legal aspects, of this this rule, I want to talk about the possibility of a cap-and-trade program. Um, this is something I think people have heard of, but they may not know exactly what it entails. The EPA has said states can do this as a part of the way to meet those uh, those carbon reduction goals. Ken, could you just explain what is a cap-and-trade program? Uh, thank you, Gretchen. Uh, the um, the cap-and-trade program in concept is an idea that you're going to have a lot of different uh, entities, a lot of different parties trying to reduce their uh, reduce their emissions. Some will be able to do it cheaply. For others, it'll be more expensive. Your overall total cost of reducing emissions is going to be minimized by getting the ones for whom it's cheap to reduce emissions to do more and put less requirement on the ones who um, uh, it, for whom it's more expensive. So what a cap-and-trade program does uh, is to uh, assign responsibilities uh, and then to, and then allow the uh, the, the various uh, in this case utilities or or if it's done at the state level uh, to 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 work it out to find the least cost combination of reduction strategies. Jody, are there any problems with this environmentally? Well, I think I think the the concept is is a good one in terms of finding the lowest cost. The, the problems can come in the implementation and making sure that you're doing it right. So we talked earlier about low-income communities and communities who are on the fence line near these plants. And if uh, if if there we what we want to make sure is we're not leaving leaving behind some of those communities who who might be next to those plants and suffering from pollution because they've transferred the, the responsibility elsewhere. Um, another thing that's important, I think, is to make sure that that marketplace of trading of credits is is really open so that you could have solar developers and wind developers and people who can do energy efficiency programs who are able to, to trade into that market. And it's not just the utilities who can who can trade it, you know, play in that market and 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 benefit from it. So I think it can it can have a lot of benefits, but you have to make sure you're safeguarding those those environmental justice communities who are harmed most by the pollution. And Jody, we haven't had a chance really to hear about the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's all about and how it works? Sure. The The Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign is uh, was founded about five, five, year, five years ago uh, nationally, and our goal is to try to move the nation beyond coal to clean energy. And what we do that by strictly grassroots power, working in communities. Uh, we also have some really talented lawyers and, uh, and really good communication staff. And we work to persuade utilities, who are really the decision maker in, in most of this, uh, or state, state agencies, that coal plants, uh, this particular coal plant needs to be retired, needs to be shut down. We had a good uh, success in Indianapolis last, last August about a year ago where Indianapolis Power and Light um, and responding to the community as well as the costs of future regulations decided that it would stop burning coal in Marion County and, and stop burning coal at its Harding Street power plant. Mm-hmm. So, the, so that's the kind of work that we do. And you know, in Indiana, since uh, 2010, we've gone from about uh, 26 power plants in the state by this time next year, there will be 13. And so um, we also work for for these kinds of uh, regulations, these kinds of safeguards at the federal level that help make sure that we're we're cleaning up the power sector and moving to clean energy. Okay, so that's a really a multi-platform uh, approach to coal, re- coal use reduction. That's right. Okay, great. We have another caller on the phone, Barbara from Monroe County. Thanks for joining us, Barbara. You have a question? 
Yes, I'm wondering why um, we can't encourage people to buy solar panels by paying a more fair price for the energy they produce. All right. Mark, you want to? Mark, yeah, that sounds like that's in your wheelhouse. It, it, well, it, it, and it becomes a matter of perspective, Barbara. So let me tell you kind of the way it works in most areas of Indiana right now. In other words, the areas where the investor-owned, my own members, work. Right now, if you put a solar panel on your roof, you're entitled to do something called net metering. Net metering says that when you generate electricity and send it back out to the utility company, send it on the wire back out to the utility, you're paid exactly the same price that you would pay if you were buying power from the utility company. So let me just make up a number. It doesn't apply to any utility here in Indiana, but it's, it's kind of in the ballpark. Typically, a customer here in Indiana at a residential level might pay something like 10 cents to buy electricity from the utility. If they put a solar panel on their roof, they will be paid 10 cents or credited 10 cents to send that power back out to the utility. The problem with that is that that power, that 10 cents that's being paid to the residential customer is somewhere between two and a half to three times what the utility could buy it somewhere else. At the moment, there's a pretty significant subsidy and that's only one of two that occurs in Indiana at the moment. And we haven't even touched on federal tax credits and all of those kinds of things. So there's a significant push right now that creates unfairness for residential customers who do not have solar but does in fact incent people to put solar on their homes. Jody, would you like to jump in here? Yeah, I would. I think that we need to uh, remember that that solar power, first of all, those folks are using those solar panels to power their homes first and, first and most of all. If they have extra electricity, it might go into the grid. That electricity is going next door to their neighbor, most likely. Uh, the utility is just trading with them for uh, trading, uh, getting daytime energy from them at peak price times and trading nighttime energy, which is low cost. For, and it, there's no dollars that change hands. And so I think the caller is right that we we need to keep that policy of net metering in order to encourage solar. And it actually should apply statewide. It really now doesn't apply to some of the, the rural electric co-ops and municipal owned power plants. Uh, or power companies. Um, and we also need to remember the benefits of that solar uh, in terms of being produced at peak times of the day when the utilities are, uh, you know, are often struggling to meet that demand. And there are a lot of benefits that, that uh, the utilities uh, tend to ignore. And what they're trying to do, what they tried to do in the legislature this year, is, is drive up the cost of solar power so that uh, to, to reduce the economics and so that they're the ones who can afford solar power, but we can't. And we need to make sure the, the, living, the playing field is level for solar across the state and everybody has access to it. And let me balance that with one comment. The peak for the average home, now this is not true for every single home, but the average home in Indiana, when that solar panel is producing the most, is not when the utility is peaking. As a matter of fact, it compounds the problem because it peaks earlier and we have to actually turn our power plants down just in time to bring them back up a little bit later when in fact the utility peaks. So it, it is not a perfect match. It actually creates some, some real significant issues. And again, that's paid for by your next door neighbor. It, it, and yes, you're right. The power physically may flow from my house to yours if I have a solar panel. The challenge though is the utility doesn't buy that power from the rest of the grid where you can buy it at again two and a half to three times less than what you pay. But you're selling it you're selling it next door for the, the same price that you're buying it for. So But if I didn't buy it from the solar producer, I'd buy it for two and a half to three times less than what I bought it from the solar producer. Go ahead, Ken. Well I, I think that one of the factors here that we have to consider is the difference between uh, put on my economist hat, the difference between variable cost and fixed cost. And a large part of the cost of running a power system is fixed cost. Mm -hmm. So when uh, the utility pays me 10 cents for my solar power, uh, then I'm not contributing to the fixed costs of the larger system. That then leads us into the uh, reasonable discussion about is this, a, is this the right way to price electricity? Maybe we should have a fixed cost for the, uh, uh, for the distribution system and uh, a marginal cost for the electricity we actually use. If we did that, then the price per unit of electricity would be significantly lower. Our bills wouldn't be lower, but the price per unit of electricity would be lower. We'd probably end up using more electricity, which would be inefficient if we did that. <laughs> Okay, and can I just to explain a fixed cost, easy example, the wire that comes to your house. Sure. Yeah. It doesn't get any more expensive or cheaper depending on what you're doing, buying sure. or selling electricity. Right. Barbara, thank you. That was a very uh, interesting call. We appreciate you participating. Uh, we've got another caller on the line. Richard from Bloomington is with us. Hi, Richard. Hi there. Hi. Go right ahead. 
Well, um, I have a question about utility rates. Uh, I guess primarily from Duke, but I suppose they all would refer uh, to other coal-burning uh, generators. It's my understanding that uh, a big cost of the uh, generation is due to the cost of the fuel use. And since coal is very cheap right now, and it seems like we ought to be getting a reduction in our bills and not an increase. Okay. Mark, do you want to take so, that one on? Oh, I'm sorry, Richard, did you have more to your question, or can I let Mark answer? Well, there was another thing I had, too, uh, is, uh, related to Duke, is uh, the new Edwardsport plant, which is, I think, a coal gasification plant. Uh, was that intended to be a, uh, a higher efficiency plant and a lower emission plant than the ones it was replacing? And what is the status of that? Okay. Thanks, Richard. Well, I, I, Richard, I, they're great questions. I do not work for Duke, so let me put a, a caveat on that. And then let me But kind they of are walk, a member of your organization. They are. And then let me kind of walk through your questions and, and give you a more generic answer rather than directly applicable to Duke. Uh, in, in the world of, of uh, utilities here in the state of Indiana, the fuel that's used to generate electricity, whether it's coal or natural gas, whether you buy the power, flows through something called a fuel cost adjustment. And what that means is that as the utility buys it, it goes to the Utility Regulatory Commission. The commission reviews that and then says, okay, we approve these costs. They were legitimate. They were needed to serve customers, and they show up on your bill. That's done quarterly, four times a year. As a result, as the cost of coal goes down, your electric bill will go down. If the cost of natural gas goes up, and some natural gas is using in, in making electricity, the cost will go up. So to, to your point, uh, Duke is, is a, a good example. They recently have restructured some of their coal contracts, and my understanding is in the coming quarters, you will in fact see some sort of a reduction in that coal component of their fuel cost. I can't tell you how big it is, but I know they've made some announcements in that arena. Uh, turning to Ed, and, and again, that's true of all utilities. As the price of coal goes up and down, it goes up and down on your bill as well. The utility does not make any money on that. It, if it costs a dollar, you're charged a dollar. Edwardsport uh, is, is a plant that was designed in many ways to be more efficient and in particular to reduce emissions. It's a different technique for using coal in the production of electricity. It is up and operating. It's a, it's a first of its kind, I think, literally in the world. Uh, they are working on constructing other plants, and it, it has had uh, its fair share of, of startup problems, but the plant is up and operating and working effectively and I think is, is proving to be an efficient and effective part of Duke's fleet. All right. Thanks, Richard. We want to remind you that you can uh, join our conversation on our live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. You can also tweet us at Noon Edition, or you can give us a call, 812-855-0811, or toll-free, 1-877-285-9348. I want to turn to the legal question. Um, Indiana's Attorney General and his counterparts from more than a dozen other states are asking the EPA to actually delay its ruling. Um, they're actually demanding the EPA respond by today, or they're going to file in court to get an injunction that would force the rule to be delayed. How likely is that to happen, that the court would actually delay this, this ruling? Oh, my golly. I, I don't know if any of us would qualify as legal experts. So, so let me, uh, I guess, report what I kind of read and understand. The first step in the process is that the attorneys general went to the EPA and asked the EPA to, to voluntarily suspend implementation of the rule pending the appeals through, the, through to whatever level of courts we go. The expectation is that the EPA will not grant that mm -hmm. uh, request, at which point we will begin the, the legal proceedings in in courts. Typically, that's done at the district court level in, in D.C., in Washington, D.C. area. They tend to handle virtually everything in the environmental arena. Uh, if, it, if it follows the path of the recent uh, Matt's decision, where it moved through that circuit court on up to the Supreme Court, is now back at the circuit court, we're probably talking two to three years before it gets up to the Supreme Court and back. Can I interrupt you and have you explain what that MATS decision is. The, the MATS is the Mercury Air Toxic Substance Rule. It is a, a rule that was implemented or, or uh, promulgated by the EPA several years ago. One of the challenging things about that and one of the things we worry with the Clean Power Plan is I mentioned that the Supreme Court saw that decision recently and made, made a decision in effect saying
saying EPA needs to think about more things than what they thought about. And they sent it back down to the district court, who will probably send it back to EPA to think about those things. The problem with all that, the court's decision came out in June of this year. Utilities were required to comply by April of this year. In other words, we had to spend all the money to comply with a very expensive rule here in Indiana. We estimated it was over a billion dollars before the Supreme Court said, wait a minute, this rule didn't think about all the things it should be thought about. Um, if I could just point out a couple of things. The one, th one key thing that's really important to remember is that the Supreme Court has already said that EPA has the authority to regulate carbon dioxide. They made that decision quite some time ago. So a challenge of, this, of this, these new safeguards, even if it succeeds, is only likely to send EPA back to the drawing board to fix something the Supreme Court or one of the courts said need, needed to be fixed. As with the mercury rule, they didn't say you can't regulate mercury. They said go back and, and fix this thing. And so what we see with the industry is attempting to just draw out and delay when we are running out of time to address the problem of climate change and climate disruption. So it's really important that um, while this challenge is going on, we I think the big question is, is the state going to work on this plan that needs to be developed? And, and I would think the utilities would rather have the state work on a plan than have the federal government impose one upon us. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we really need to do is, is roll up our sleeves and start working on reducing carbon dioxide emissions and, and making a plan that's good for Indiana. And, and similar to what happened with the, the mercury air toxics rule, the, the concern we have is utility industry. Again, we spent a billion dollars before the Supreme Court said no EPA has skipped over a key factor. Jody's right. The EPA has the ability to regulate mercury. But does that guarantee that when it goes back to EPA, they may not say, well, maybe the reduction should have been less than what we mandated. Maybe they should have been changed in some way, shape, or form in which Indiana might not have spent that, which in turn means the cost to all Hoosiers would not have been as significant as it is. But doesn't that just put us ahead here. of the game? Pardon me? Doesn't that just put us ahead of the game if you went ahead and spent the money? I mean, so, granted, you didn't want to do that, but yet you're going to accrue the the reductions based on that expenditure, yes? I, I guess the, the assumption you're making is that we are all comfortable spending the money as a person. Again, Rose, when she called in and said she was on a fixed income, that she's prepared to spend the extra money to deal with something which may not be legal. And as I know we all know, and I'm sure all the listeners know, one of the great things about America, it was founded on the concept that everybody follows the law. It doesn't matter if it's you and I as individuals or the EPA. Everybody follows the law. And the question to the Supreme Court, it'll be different than what went up on mercury or toxics, but the question is basically, did EPA follow the law? Mm -hmm. And if they did not, then why are any of us being mandated to spend money for something that, that again, I'm, I'm presuming the Supreme Court says, no, they didn't do it right. If they find that, then does, does it really make sense? Do we want to be a society where somebody can say, gosh, I like this law, you go spend the money? No matter what. And by the way, who gets to pick which law it is? Yeah, Sorry, but, Ken, I'm, I keep no, cutting no, you off. No, that, no, that's not at all. Uh, but, but that's assuming that the final goal is absolute strict legal um, uh, uh, observation. So let, let, me, let me give it to you, give it to you a different way, which is if the utilities uh, succeed – and Jody's scenario works out where EPA goes back and says, okay, we can make this legal, mm -hmm. that is going to be a far less pal palatable solution than the one that they've come up with. Because, and, and, and there's a history here of, um, uh, of and, and I, I, I'm not a strong partisan one way or the other, but it's very hard to read this any other way. The Republicans have just shot themselves in the foot on this one. Because when Obama came in, he said, I want a cap and trade program, even as EPA was saying, uh, we're going to have to follow up Massachusetts v. EPA, the Supreme Court decision that uh, Jody referred to earlier, we have to start regulating. And, and there, was a, there was an opportunity there where uh, the, the drafters of, uh, of, of the final uh, bill that was considered, the Waxman-Markey bill, mm -hmm. said, we will preempt. Uh, uh, the, the Clean Air Act, right. and we'll do this right. And so when Obama went in, he, he was basically saying, here is a cost-effective solution. Mm -hmm. If you don't do cost-effective, we're going to have to do something that's not cost-effective. And, and, and if, I, if I can just play this out one more step, All right. we're now in a situation where we've done the, the thing that is not cost-effective. I, I once referred to this as a, as a an approach that only a lawyer could love. <laughs> and uh, But now we're in a situation where the governor is saying, we're not going to comply and we may force EPA to do something even less cost-effective. 
And, and so I would encourage the electric utility industry to say, you be careful what you wish for. You might win on legal grounds, and you'll get something worse. Although, having said that, if you go back and look over a period of the last decade or so, carbon dioxide emissions in this country, again, have dropped pretty significantly, 20-plus percent. Part of, part of what you speculate is that that will not continue on a going-forward basis, and yet, just to give you easy examples, one of the investor-owned electric utilities just announced earlier this year and has now begun constructing a solar farm. In, in Indiana. Another has contracted for added solar to, to be added into its mix. So at some level, we have made enormous progress as this country, and, and why not allow some of that just to move forward? I, I also worry, just to be honest with you, on, about the unintended consequences. And let, let me give you a specific example. Here in the state of Indiana, there's a lot of steel manufactured. To make that steel takes about half of the carbon dioxide that it takes to make the same amount of steel in China. So if, if we raise the cost of electricity and other things and, and the steel mills make less steel here, we haven't reduced the demand for steel, but on a global basis, we've increased carbon dioxide. Similarly, Philip Moeller, the, who's one of the uh, commissioners of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, has stated that his concern is that this is going to play with the way that power plants are, are run, who, who uses which power plant, and actually increase CO2 emissions. All of those kinds of concerns are on the table, and if CO2 is a problem, are we really addressing it effectively and in a way that manages things? I think those are the kinds of legal questions we have to think through. Well, but I, I think Ken's point is a good one in terms of the politics of this, is which is that um, and at every step the Republicans have tried to uh, to block this, and we're seeing this with with our current governor. And what what the what the rule actually does is gives incentives for early actions. It gives incentives for states that start to move ahead. It gives incentives to to put solar in low income communities and all kinds of things that that we should be getting to work on. And the longer we wait, the more and more costly it's going to be. And so I'm I'm hoping that the utilities understand that too, and that. Uh, that they're telling the governor, telling the Department of Environmental Management that while we're challenging this rule in court, let's work on a state plan. And that's consistent with, with what Indiana has done every other time we challenged a, an Air, Clean Air Act rule in court. We have worked on a state plan even while we were challenging mm -hmm. it, and that's what we need to do. Well, let me suggest energy efficiency is moving ahead. And by the way, I, I, I just can't sit here without saying this. No lesser light than Democrat Joe Donnelly has come out and said this clean power plant is not necessarily what it needs to be. And by the way, he's one of those that voted against some of the Waxman-Markey provisions back in the day. So I, I again, I, I just need to try and balance this out a little bit. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, Ken? Do you see this as, quote unquote, an overreach of historic proportions? Uh, not at all. Not at all. Uh, the. The, the only question is the vehicle that's been used. So we're, we're using, we're using uh, the Clean Air Act uh, to change both emissions and energy. And so the, the, the claim here is that it's an inappropriate use of the Clean Air Act. Uh, and and th that takes me back to my, my history, which is we could have done much, much better. Uh, but the Supreme Court has made it very clear that EPA uh, has both the mandate and the obligation to address CO2 emissions. The question is how to do it. The Clean Air Act's a blunt instrument for doing that, but the EPA is in a corner. They have to do something on this. And there's a lot of flexibility for states, as we've said earlier. There's this, the states can do a lot to, to develop a plan that's unique to that state. We could set up our own uh, you know, regional trading program, and, and, I, and I believe the state has been talking to other states about that. Um, New England has one, a regional greenhouse gas initiative, where they do already do that kind of trading. So there's a lot of options for Indiana to, to work on, and we have a few years to, to put it together. All right. Ken, have we ever seen these kinds of regulations before? Or have we ever been in this type of situation? Maybe, Mark, you could even uh, jump in here, too. Have utilities and, and other companies had to adapt to this level? Well, the, the, probably the, the, the best analog would be uh, the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments related to sulfur dioxide. I, I was at the Council of Economic Advisors and the executive office at the time. Uh, and so I, I was tangentially involved in that, even as we were getting started on climate change. We were making estimates uh, based on uh, industry input, uh, best, uh, uh, best information available to the government, that the cost of a, at a, at a particular point in time, the cost of an allowance for sulfur dioxide was going to be $600 a ton. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, it actually was 60. 
<laughs> the industry was far, far more innovative and creative uh, than anyone had expected them to be, including themselves. We have a bit of a history of overestimating the costs because we underestimate just how creative industry can be in this situation. And I have a lot of confidence in Mark's members that they, they are pretty smart and they can figure this out. And there's a lot of innovation out there in Indiana that we don't even know, you know what's going to accrue in 10, 15 years from now in terms of costs and, and technological innovation. So, so all those projections, as Ken said, are often way overblown from what the actual costs and, tend and to be. And I appreciate that. And I, I tend to agree. The industry has some very, very talented individuals and very creative folks. The, the difference I see between the Clean Air Act Amendment back in 1990 and now, you touched on, on sulfur dioxide removal. So it was the, the scrubbers that you mentioned, mm -hmm. Mary Catherine. I can be honest with you, at that point, I know there are power plants here in Indiana, full large-scale power plants that had scrubbers on them in 1980, not mm -hmm. 1990, 10 years of operation before the law came into effect. There is not a single carbon capture and sequestration facility in operation here. Mm -hmm. Gretchen, going to your question, it strikes me that, that the difference in this rule versus the Clean Air Act Amendment and the rules that came out after that is the fact that it does not limit what a utility is required to do to inside of its own power plant. Every emissions plant uh, requirement so far has said, you must remove this amount of sulfur dioxide from that power plant, y you tell us how you're gonna go about doing it. This one says, as you point out, let's go outside and build a different kind of generating station. Let's use our coal fleet less and generate more with natural gas. Although it's not one of the building blocks anymore, Ken's right, energy efficiency is strongly encouraged in this. All of those are great techniques, but it's unusual and the first time ever, I guess, in my experience, to go outside of the power plant and expect the utility company to do something. It raises a host of questions. So, so Mark, let me ask you, would you have been happier? Would, would you, go ahead. Would go you ahead. have been happier if they had said, you can't count energy efficiency in the state plan? I, I, I tell you, I think that those are the challenges and questions we have to dig with. No, I think energy efficiency is critical, but keep in mind, we've been reducing carbon dioxide steadily for a long time in this country. And we need to do a lot more. Uh, you know, Jody, I, I think that, that we have a lot of questions, and what I worry about there is the unintended consequences. If we're, if we're not mm -hmm. thoughtful about how we do it, I would hate to see us make in, launch into a program and see carbon dioxide go up okay. on a global basis. On a global basis. scale. It's a, glo yeah. it's a global issue. Well, we'll have to leave it there. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank our guests for joining us, Mark Mazel of the Indiana Energy Association, Jody Paris of the Sierra Club, and Ken Richards from the Indiana University School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Thank you all for being here. Thank and you. I want to thank, thank Mary Catherine Carmichael, my co-host, and producers Alexander McCall and Drew Dodlin, and engineer Tyler Andrews. I'm Gretchen Frazee. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu.